Entitlement. It's the belief that one is inherently deserving of privileges or special treatment. And this entitlement mentality is defined as a sense of deservingness or of being owed a favor when little or nothing has been done to deserve special treatment. It's the you owe me attitude. And entitlement is actually a narcissistic personality trait that says it's all about me. Now, all of us have met people who have a sense of entitlement. Maybe it's a person who cut in front of us at the coffee shop or the individual who demanded to be helped before you at a government office where you were needing assistance or when you were in a healthcare setting and someone you know, demanded to be seen before you were. Simply put, people with a sense of entitlement think that the rules do not apply to them. Now, it's not known exactly why some people fall into the entitlement mentality, but the following are considered to be contributing factors. Number one, the environment that a person grew up in. Was there a lot of privilege? Was there affluence? Was there conveniences? Was there very little responsibility? Did they have a lot of things handed to them uh, as an individual? The second thing is the way the parents treated the child growing up. Was that child coddled? Were they babied? Were they the center of attention? Were they lavished with things and possessions? Were they the helicopter parents who hovered over their children? Did their children not have to work for anything or take responsibility for anything? Number three, did the adults in the person's life solve their problems for them? Were they always on this person's side, always defending them? This person could never do any wrong. They were always there to bail them out. And you know, we had a former youth pastor here, uh, Pastor Steve Cornelius, who had a saying about his own parenting, and even as a youth pastor, and he was always there for his children, and he was always there for young people in any of the tough times they would go through. But he said, if you did something that was self-inflicted, he said, if you're going to be stupid, you at least better be tough. And basically, he was just saying, if you're going to do dumb things, you're going to go out and face the music on your own. Now, the, did the adults in the person's life try to solve their problems for them? Number four, how was this person treated by authority figures in their life? Of course, that could be parents, but any authority figures. Were they given passes? Did people look the other way? Well, you're so-and-so's child, so you're going to be let off the hook here, you know, how did the people who were in authority treat this individual? So the environment that someone is raised in affects how a person sees the world and what they expect from others. And this truly affects every relationship in a person's life, both personally and professionally. So what would be the long-term damage of someone with an entitlement mentality? Well, here's the first one conflict in their relationships. One of the classic signs that someone, you know, has this entitlement mentality is they're constantly embroiled in conflict. And what the biggest part is, is they never try to solve that, or they actually will refuse to step into those conflicts and try to work through that or try to problem solve. They won't do that. Number two, unhappiness just miserable, you know, often displayed through anger or a sense of being cheated or that they've been treated unfairly in this situation. This isn't just. A third one is disappointment because they have all the expectations and they're these unmet expectations. So they carry around all this disappointment and close on the heels of disappointment is depression. 
You know, many times a low-grade depression walking around because things are so terrible for them in their life. A fifth thing they say is career losses. And this means often uh, what happens is for people with a sense of entitlement, they're pretty good at talking the talk. They can, they can pitch a good tale. They can many times do well in a job interview, and they can even get into leadership roles in work because they can pitch a good story. But then when they get into that, they don't perform very well. They're often self-serving. They tend to not be a team player. And they don't solve problems or, or, or solve conflict and work at that. And so career-wise, things tend to spiral downhill for them. So what can a person do to overcome this first-world problem of entitlement? Experts in medical fields tell us that such a person needs to change their mindset. Number one, they need to start living by the golden rule. Treat others the way you want to be treated. Number two, realize that all situations in life are not unfair. And think about for a moment the greater good for all people. What would our world be like? if no one ever had to work hard for grades or no one ever had to work hard for anything good in life. So realize that all situations in life are just not unfair. Number three, learn to respect others. You know, recognize that other people have needs too. Other people have struggles in their lives. Other people have feelings. You're not the only person that has feelings or struggles or needs in life. Other people do as well. So learn to respect others. And number four, Learn from your mistakes. Treat failure as a learning tool. Remember, mistakes can be corrected, so never stop learning. Look for the value that is found in failure. Now, you might not realize this today at first glance, but the passage that was read for us and that we're looking at today, Matthew chapter 15, verses 21 through 28, the account of the Canaanite woman with great faith is actually a powerful rebuke of Israel, a people of privilege who ultimately rejected Jesus, the Messiah, their Messiah. And sadly, the critics of the Bible and literal theologians, they like to take, try to take Jesus to task on account of this passage because he referred to this Canaanite woman as a dog. And they say, Jesus showed no ethnic sensitivity whatsoever. And this is a derogatory term. He was putting this woman down. And even in the famous battle of David versus Goliath in 1 Samuel chapter 17, the giant Goliath accuses David of disrespecting him in this confrontation. In verse 43, it says, am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? He's saying, I'm a warrior. I'm the Philistine champion. Show me the respect I deserve. Send somebody out here worthy to fight me. Goliath was a giant warrior. He was from the region that the same Canaanite woman also hails from. Also in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus uses this humiliating metaphor of dogs to indicate the holy message of the gospel of God's kingdom must not be defiled by those who are unreceptive to it and who have rejected Jesus who brought the message. He simply says, do not give the dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. So to counter the strong language that Jesus uses with the Canaanite woman here, Bible-believing Christians like to point out, well, the word dog here really means small dog. And, and of course, for sentimental Westerners, many who have pets, the notion of a cute little puppy makes sense of this passage. But the problem is that most dogs in the ancient world were scavengers. 
They were wild. They were unruly, which is why that usage referring to pagans outside the covenant community in Israel were often referred to as dogs. And some dogs back then were used for protecting livestock and people as well. But in rare cases, uh, and it was usually only among the wealthy, people would have household pets. They would be smaller dogs, basically what we would call lap dogs in our culture. And I do, however, think that both sides of this debate missed the point that Jesus was making in this passage. See, Matthew's gospel was written originally to a Jewish audience. It's a gospel meaning good news that links together for its hearers and its readers the Old and the New Testaments, the Old and the New Covenants. And Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah who would save his people, both Jew and Gentile alike. So what Matthew's gospel does is emphasize for us Jesus' lineage, Jesus' authority, and Jesus' power. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, it begins this way. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And you know, gene- genealogy and its root form, the word, is actually the word Genesis. And that's what we get at the beginning of the, of the Old Testament. In the beginning, 1-1, Genesis 1-1, God created the heavens and the earth. And that's almost identical to Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, especially when it's linked together with the other descriptive creation texts of Genesis chapter 2, verse 4, and Genesis chapter 5, verse 1. Verse, chapter 2, verse 4 says, this is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. And then chapter 5, verse 1 of Genesis says, this is the written account of Adam's line when God created mankind. He made them in the likeness of God. See, Genesis is the record of God's creation and genealogy of the first human beings. Matthew is the beginning of the story of God's covenant relationship with Israel that culminates in the Messiah, Jesus. And one could say that the entire book of Matthew is really all about Jesus. Now, when we come to Matthew chapter 24, just prior to chapter 15, in verses 22 through 36, the disciples are in a boat, and they're on the Sea of Galilee when rough waters come up. And then they see Jesus walking toward them on the water. And at first they think it's a ghost, and then they recognize him. So Peter gets out of the boat, and he starts walking out to Jesus, but then it tells us in the text there that he saw the wind. In other words, he saw the turbulence, he saw the storm. All of a sudden, at the last moment, that's what he sees, and he cries out to Jesus, Lord, save me! And what does Jesus do? He saves him, and then he says to him, you have little faith. Why did you doubt? So here, in these first 14 chapters of the Gospel of Matthew, we have the disciples being portrayed as having faith, but they have a developing faith. That's occurring. Then verse 34 of chapter 14 tells us that they landed at Gennesaret. That's on the northwest shore now of the Sea of Galilee. So we pick it up in chapter 15, verses 1 and 2. Then some Pharisees and teachers of the law came to Jesus from Jerusalem. That's a long way. They traveled a long way to be with Jesus. And then what do they do? Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? They don't wash their hands before they eat. So Jesus starts talking about how they're breaking the commands. And then he says in verses 8 and 9, These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts 
are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. Yeah, they're very vigorous about their faith. They're very dogmatic, but it's only coming out of their lips. It's not in their hearts. But look at what the disciples say in verse 12. Then the disciples came to him and asked, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this? Jesus, did you see how upset they were? They're mad. They're going nuts here. Did, did, did you catch that, Jesus? Did you catch that? Now we come to verse 21. Leaving that place, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. Jesus explicitly withdraws now to a Gentile territory. And basically, he's not going to return to Israel until he heads to Jerusalem on Palm Sunday and for Passion Week and the crucifixion and the resurrection. He does spend a short stint of time in the southeastern portion of the Sea of Galilee before heading to Jerusalem, but that was Decapolis. And that was predominantly a Gentile area. So he's done right now dealing with the nation of Israel. And in verse 21, he says it goes to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And significantly, this was significant historically because the arch enemies of Israel resided there. In Mark's account in chapter 7 of this very story of this woman, it tells us that the woman was uh, Greek and she was born in Syro-Phoenicia. Now, prior to the Roman occupation of Israel, which is what they were under now, uh, and prior to a short period of self-governance during the Maccabean revolt, uh, prior to this, the Syrophoenicians had occupied Israel. So go back to the 8th century B.C. You have the Assyrians that conquered the northern kingdom. Then in the 7th century B.C. you have the Babylonians who came in. And then in the the 6th century it was the Medes and the Persians who took over uh, from the Babylonians. And then in the 3rd century or into the 4th century B.C. it was the Greeks. And after the Greeks it was the Syrophoenicians who ruled and occupied the land. And then now the Romans. So They've been oppressed and occupied all these years by all these foreign countries. And this passage tells us that Jesus takes a little respite from all the religious opposition, from the Pharisees, from all the religious leaders in Israel, plus from all the crowds that were following him everywhere to get away and prepare for his journey and his mission to Jerusalem. Jesus retreats to a completely pagan, unbelieving area. And Matthew points out Jesus began his ministry in the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. In fact, if you drop back in your, in your Bibles to chapter 4, verses 12 through 17, here's what it says. When Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he withdrew to Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun of Naphtali, to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah. Land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land, the shadow of death, a light has dawned. And from that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. So he does this ministry. He begins proclaiming God's kingdom. He's, he's going around doing miracles. He's teaching people about God. But not everybody's responsive to that. In fact, we pick it up in chapter 11, verses 20 through 24. Here's what it says. When Jesus began to denounce the towns in which most of his miracles had been performed, he began to do that because they did not repent. 
Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted to the heavens? No, you will go down to Hades. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. But I tell you that it will be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. The Israelites were privileged to hear Jesus' you know, message. They were, they were privileged to see his miracles. But their lack of repentance and their unwillingness to believe condemned them. Then we come to chapter 13. This is even in his own community. Chapter 13, verses 53 through 58. When Jesus had finished these parables, he moved on from there. Coming to his hometown, he began teaching the people in their synagogue, and they were amazed. Where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers, they asked? Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother's name Mary? And aren't his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? We know all these people. How is this even possible? Aren't all his sisters with us? Where then, then, where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own town and in his own home. And he did not do many miracles there because of their lack of faith. Then we come to chapter 14, verses 1 and 2. We have the king, Herod of Anti Herod Antipas, and he is opposed as well. Look at what it says in verses 1 and 2. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the reports about Jesus, and he said to his attendants, This is John the Baptist. He has risen from the dead. That is why miraculous powers are at work in him. The king of Israel is the one who had arrested and executed Jesus' forerunner, John the Baptist. So it is no longer safe in Israel for Jesus because of all of the unbelief that is there. Now, that's our backdrop. Verse 22 in our text tells us, A Canaanite woman from the vicinity came to him crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is demon-possessed and suffering terribly, continually crying out. It's actually in the imperfect tense there, so she just keeps repeating this and calling this out over and over and over again. And uh, interestingly, what you should know, in this particular region, three miles northwest of there was the location of a temple to a pagan god, the god of healing known as Eshem. And this whole area was notorious for the worship of the god of Baal. And this was pagan central here where Jesus went. Sort of like he, he went to retired to the Las Vegas Strip with all its pagan shrines and places of hedonistic worship. This woman in this unbelieving, most unlikely place comes to Jesus to seek healing for her daughter. And she says, son of David, which by the way, occurs only 17 times in the Gospel of Matthew. And one of the most unlikely people of all to do that was a Canaanite woman. Again, women in a patriarchal culture like that back then uh, weren't even considered reliable witnesses. And then number two, the very fact that she was from a pagan culture had, that had been a thorn in the flesh of Israel ever since they entered into the Promised Land. 
But look what verse 23 says. Jesus did not answer a word. So his disciples came to him and urged him, send her away, for she keeps crying out after us. Jesus, do something. Do something. Heal her. Do something. Send her away. She, this, is, this is getting annoying. This is, this is too much. Do something about this, Jesus. Verse 24. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. You know, when Jesus sent out the 12 in Matthew chapter 10, he told them in verses 5 and 6, do not go out among the Gentiles or enter the town of the Samaritans. Go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. So Jesus is saying here that he must first go to fulfill all the promises that were made to Israel in the old covenant. In fact, Isaiah chapter 53 verses 6 through 8 is one of those promises and we always read this on Good Friday here at Mission Covenant Church and we know that this applies to us personally but you always have to recognize who was the first recipients. Who heard this prophecy the first time? Who were the first ears that that came to understand? It was the nation of Israel. And look at what it says in verses 6 through 8. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each one has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. It's talking about Israel there, primarily first, and then it's talking about us. Verse 7, he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears in silent. So he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested. Matthew's pointing out nobody's protesting. In fact, everybody's turning away from him in unbelief. Who protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living for the transgression of my people. He was punished. My people. My own nation of people. First, Jesus, excuse me, that's the fulfillment in the Old Testament. Now in the New Testament, listen to what Romans 15 has to say. Highlights this even more, verses 8 and 9. For I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth, so that the promises made to the patriarchs might be confirmed. And moreover, that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles. I will sing the praises of of your name. So prior to the crucifixion, prior to the resurrection and the ascension, Jesus concentrated his mission on fulfilling the Old Testament promises to Israel. John told us that in his gospel, John chapter 1 verse 11, that he came to that which was his own, but his own received him not. That's who Jesus went to first. But then it goes on to say in the next verse, but as many as received him, to them gave he the right to become children of God. And after the crucifixion and the resurrection, just before the ascension, that's when Jesus gave the great commission. In Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20, therefore go and make disciples of all the nations. Of, that's all the peoples, okay? Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe everything I've commanded you. And behold, I will be with you always, even until the very end of the age. He came for the lost sheep of Israel, first and foremost, primarily. But then it was all people of all the world once the crucifixion and resurrection had taken place. So here we are, back in Matthew chapter 15, in verse 25. The woman came and knelt before him. Lord, help me, 
she said. Three times in this text, it tells us that she called Jesus Lord. She kneels in humility, lays it all on the line for her daughter, and she has to live. Think about this. She has to go back and live in this pagan land. And she's not going to the God of Eshem for healing. Or maybe she already has and realized that Eshem couldn't heal her daughter, couldn't deliver her daughter, so she's turning to Jesus. You know, maybe she came to the end of her rope. We don't know. But people are not going to let her live this down. She's got to go back and live in that pagan land, that pagan culture. But she's turning everything over to Jesus. Verse 26, he replied, it's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs? Should I give the spiritual food that, of Israel to those outside of Israel? Would I be wasting this on you? Verse 27, yes it is, Lord, she said. Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. Even the little puppies, even the little dogs get, get the crumbs. Yes, I understand what your mission is, she says. And, and I am from an unbelieving people, but my need for you is great. And your scraps alone, your tiniest little scraps alone would be sufficient for me. And that's when Jesus says what he does in verse 28. Then Jesus said to her, woman, you have great faith. Do you realize that's the only time in the Bible Jesus said anyone he had great faith? Jesus, you know, uh, did comment on people's faith. But this is the first time he said someone had superlative faith, great faith. Your request is granted. And her daughter was healed at that moment. This is messianic. That's, that's an exorcism that takes place here. Now, folks, privilege demands accountability. And the vast amount of Israel was able to see and to hear Jesus and watch his miracles, and yet they rejected him. Matthew highlights for all of us here the necessity of true faith, and he does it from the most unlikely person in the most unlikely place. And Matthew also points out that great faith isn't necessarily a large quantity of faith but rather it's this immovable steadfastness in trusting God's word and God's will that it can be accomplished and will be accomplished against all odds. You know, many would argue that we happen to be a people of great privilege, growing up in the West, growing up in America, materially, physically, and spiritually. We've all been blessed to grow up in a culture where we have so much, where we can freely go to church, where the gospel can freely be proclaimed, when we can have Bibles galore in our house and, and in our church, and we can read from whatever version of the Bible we so choose. And you know, in a culture like that, in a society like that, it's easy to come across as if we're entitled, that somehow we deserve all of these things when many faithful brothers and sisters in Christ all around the world are being denied these very things. Consider this. Number one, the sheer delight of people living in slums outside of Manila in the Philippines because they have discovered eternal life in Christ. Meanwhile, we have many Americans who complain that the worship service was too long or that it was too loud or that they don't like this worship leader or that worshiper. I can't worship when that person is leading or that service didn't inspire me at all. Is entitlement a good thing for us? in the West? Or consider this example. How about the steadfast courage of pastors in Muslim countries who face imprisonment 
beatings, poverty, alienation from their families, and even the threat of death and death itself. But they count it a privilege. Some of them call it a gift to be able to suffer in Jesus' name. Yet we have many Americans who won't attend church services because they don't agree with the service time that's happening or that they're disappointed in the church's leadership or they blame the pastor for this or for that. So I'm just going to listen to this podcast or I'm going to listen to that podcast or I'm going to attend this church virtually this Sunday and I'll attend that church virtually the next Sunday somewhere else. Entitlement may not be serving the American church very well. Or consider this example. What about the peace that patients in intensive care units around the globe have? A peace that comes from the recognition that they are loved and cared for by the one who holds the health of their souls in his tender hands. Meanwhile, we have so many Americans and American Christians who cry, why me? Why me, God? Or they blame God for some misfortune in their life should, as if misfortune should never come our way. The amazing story of the persistent Canaanite mother both warns us and instructs us that Jesus responds to those who courageously come to him with their desperate needs. True privilege comes through openness to Jesus in faith and trust. Let's pray. God, our Father, we thank you for this unnamed character in the Bible uh, who comes from an unlikely place even in the Bible. And Lord, we recognize today through this overview of the Gospel of Matthew the significance of all of this. When you have disciples who have a developing faith, you have those who should have faith who are rejecting the Messiah, rejecting the good news of Jesus, rejecting the Gospel, who are very entitled and had many privileges that other people didn't have. And yet here is this desperate woman from a pagan culture who comes and, and casts her faith on Jesus and, and trusts Jesus. And Lord, what a powerful message to each of us. It's not who we are. It's not where we come from. It's not what our bloodline is. It's not how much wealth or affluence. None of those things matter to you, God. Faith and trust are what matters to you. And I pray, God, that your people will distribute that and, and exercise that and demonstrate that, I pray, Lord, in a culture that's getting more and more uh, uh, consumeristic and more and more hypersensitive about every little issue that's out there. And Lord, may we stand out as people of faith and trust, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.